Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretching, trying to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Anna, take it away. Quality content, but no. Pete, I think Anna's mic needs a bit more volume for her singing. Anna, take it away. <laughs> no. Anyway, hello and welcome to the BFI <laughs> podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Anna. Yes, and this time around we're going to be talking about 9 to 5, the film, the musical, the sensation. Before we do, Anna, what have you discovered since we last talked? Well, I've been binge-watching The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix, which is the new reboot remake of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which was one of my favourite TV shows growing up. It's all centers on Sabrina Spellman, who is a teenage half-witch, half-mortal. But this time around, it's a lot darker. It was on Hilda. She annoyed me, so I killed her and buried her in the yard. Zelda! It's very much in the vein of Riverdale, which is also on Netflix and has become a hugely successful as a sort of dark teen pop series. But there's a lot of extremely dark kind of satanic imagery. It goes fully deep into witchcraft mythos. It's kind of like the darker cousin of Harry Potter. But at the same time, it's quite funny. It's almost aggressively woke, which is one of the things that kind of rings a bit false about it. But, you know, fair enough. Good on them for trying. We can't do this. You must. It's not the of Sabrina. You're going to die, Asprey. Girls, girls. Let's not be catty bitches. Hmm? It's just that you've grown up before my very eyes. You're a rebel, Spellman. That's how I like my witches. I loved it. I think it's really gritty and fun, visually really interesting. The only complaint I will have about Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is the fact that they did not bring back Salem, the talking sassy cat. We do miss the sassy cat. My discovery this time around, it's not really a discovery because everybody out there is playing it, is Red Dead Redemption 2, the video game. What's the game about? It's a cowboy game, essentially. It's set in the late 19th century. It's when the uh, American government was starting to crack down on outlaws and you're kind of the one of the last remaining gangs out there. Listen to me. We don't want to kill any of you. But trust me, we will. Wake him up a little! 
As ever with this kind of game, what I love about it is not so much the blockbuster game itself, but the way that it inspires loads of really great writers out there to write things about it that are really interesting and in-depth. And I thought the piece that you particularly respond to is a piece comparing it to Westworld and how this world is now so immersive with the sounds and the feel and the look of the thing that you playing it is literally like being in a Wild West theme park. And you can take that any way you like. Unfortunately, that can go to the darker places. Like there's a YouTube video at the moment. It's called something like Beating Up an Annoying Feminist. And there's a suffragette character in the game that you can actually beat up if you want to. And that's picked up a lot of traction from certain disreputable groups. So you kind of have this, are you going to be a white hat or a black hat moment mm-hmm. within a video game, which when a world feels that tangible and real, starts to kind of play out in troubling and interesting ways. So you should uh, get back into video games. Yeah, you really should. It's a good one. It's a good one. This whole thing is pretty much done. We're more ghosts than people. My other big recommendation this time around is the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast which is an incredible podcast where they make up genres essentially and count down the top 10 of those genres. But part of that is a feature they have called 50 Songs for 50 Soundtracks. And guess what? The song they're doing this time around is 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton. What an amazing and not at all prepared segue. So this week in honour of the BFI's re-release of the feminist revenge comedy 9 to 5 as part of our nationwide project Comedy Genius, we're going to be looking at, air quotes here, working women films, which might be a genre that we just invented. And in 9 to 5, which was originally released in 1983, office workers played by Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin and the glorious Dolly Parton turn the tables on their sleazy sexist boss, who is played with appalling gusto by Daphne Coleman after they've had enough of his everyday misogyny nonsense. So Jane Fonda, whose work we're also presenting in a two-month retrospective at the BFI South Bank right now throughout November and December, was the driving force behind the film when it was produced. It was the first project that she led on as a producer, not just as an actor, because she had just set up her own production company. And when we welcome her to the BFI stage a few weeks ago, she spoke a lot about 9 to 5 as an issue film wrapped up in comedy. Behind the zany antics and the office revenge fantasies, there lies a cry for gender equality in the workplace. And as this is true, as I was driving home from the theater, I turned on the radio and Dolly Parton was singing Two Doors Down and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And I thought, oh my goodness, she's never been in a movie, but if Dolly was in a movie, and imagine she can't even see her hands, you know, and she's trying to type with her big breasts and her long fingernails, and <laughs> people are going to want to see Dolly Parton in a movie as a secretary. This is perfect. And, but it took me a year to convince them. Um, but eventually I did, and we rewrote the script. Colin Higgins wrote and directed it, and... Um, I, I arranged, to, there was a National Association of Women Office Workers, 9 to 5, the National Association, and they were based in Cleveland. And I called up and I said, look, I'm coming with the writer-director, and would you gather together 30 or 40 women from different companies, banks and insurance companies, so that he can ask them all questions. So they sat in a circle and they all went around and told their stories, and then, this is why he was a genius. He said, do you ever fantasize what, what you'd like to do to your boss? Oh. I mean, we couldn't use a lot of words. <laughs> oh, my God. But that, that formed the basis of, you know, of, of the movie. 
Look, I got a gun out there in my purse. And up to now, I've been forgiven and forgetting because of the way I was brought up. But I tell you one thing. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine. And I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. So we're going to look at that film and some of the other women at work films that delve a little bit deeper, especially when they're wrapped in more commercial or, say, more female-friendly genres like rom-coms and the like. 95 is being re-released now on the 16th of November, and it was a huge box of a success in 1980 when it was first hitting cinemas. How do you think it's being received now compared to how it was received in the 80s? I mean, it was an amazing success at the time, and I was mm. really surprised by that. It was second in the box office of the year behind The Empire Strikes Back. So, you know, a massive film for its time, which considering it's slightly, I mean, a lot of people call it a feminist film, which I think it is, but it's also to me a kind of 1980s socialist film. By the end of the film, we get into the situation where the characters have set up a workplace that has childcare on site, has flexi time for all, has d- brilliant disabled access for a 1980s office. It looks like a kind of, not a socialist utopia, but like a, a workforce utopia at least. So it felt very strange to me that a progressive film did that kind of volume at the box office at the time. I'd be really interested to see how it does now as well, because I think the kind of conversation around it has slightly slightly shifted and hasn't at the same time. Jane Fonda made a big point about saying that times haven't really changed, that we're still fighting misogyny in the workplace and women are still feeling victimised and underappreciated in the same way that these characters have. But at the same time, I think probably the way we look at the film will have changed a bit in that we'll be taking it as much more of a serious prospect where I get the feeling that the 1980s audience might have seen it as something more of a kind of jokey proposition, particularly since there's a lot in the film that plays up to that. There's these fantasy sequences and Dolly Parton's character is deceptively, in the early stages at least, deceptively shallow and then develops into somebody that you feel takes the situation much more personally. I don't know, how do you feel? It's, it's really interesting because it's you're absolutely right. I don't think at that time it would have even been labelled a feminist comedy. So now we're talking about it as a feminist comedy, a revenge comedy, right? But I don't think now feminism is in vogue, you know, it's kind of imbued in pop culture and everybody's using the word kind of really sparingly, but it wasn't such a popular word back in the day. And in fact, I think Jane Fonda did make a really good point and I literally agree with her in the sense that it's important to sometimes wrap up important issues in something a lot more palatable, more accessible, easier to swallow, basically, in the same way that you'd give medicine to a dog, right? (laughs) So in a way, she was wrapping up and obviously was incredibly politically committed and active already at that time. So she was wrapping up this issue film and she talked about how she thought this could be a drama, but um, or it was shaping up to be a, a very serious drama about kind of inequality and sexual harassment and so on. And actually it made more sense and she knew it could reach more eyeballs if it was a comedy, if she had someone genius, like a comedic genius like Lily Tomlin and someone completely fresh and new and sort of unexpected like Dolly Parton, who has this sort of always has this intelligence behind the eyes, but it's all sort of packaged in this over-the-top country singer, you know, appearance that is, um, that's part of the joke. It's like you almost don't expect her to be presented as a smart, capable, ambitious woman, but she is from the very get-go. And she's so aware of how she's perceived and how she's treated by her boss, how she's treated by the other women in the office as well. That's a really interesting thing because they all bitch about her in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. They all um, think she's just a bimbo. They all think she's sleeping with the boss. And they're not really trying to engage with her 
or understand with her. So that friendship that forms between those three characters is also a, a big part of sort of the message and the plot of the movie. It's about kind of female solidarity. So instead of trying to push each other out of the way, it's about working together to try to make it better for everyone, not just one person, not just yourself, which is, again, kind of like you mentioned, a socialist utopia wrapped <laughs> up in a really funny sort of frenzied revenge comedy. What? Now, let me finish, OK? And don't go flying off the handle. You gave that promotion to Bob Enright instead of me. I've got five years seniority over him. I know that. For Christ's sake, I trained him. I know that, but see, the, the company... Oh, the company <laughs> bullshit. It's your decision. You promoted him. You tell me why. Well, in the first place, see, Bob does have a college degree. Oh, Alex. brilliant. Brilliant. While he's away at college getting his precious, useless degree, I'm working my butt off at this company. And in the second place, he does have a family to support. And I don't? What has that got to do Wait, with anything? Violet, look, my hands are tied here. The company needs a man in this position. I mean, it's interesting that comparing the times because I think that probably in definitely in the 70s, probably in the early 80s when this was released, there was a lot less of this kind of dogmatic approach to this is this. It's a comedy or mm -hmm. this is a thriller or even this is an issue film. Like, I, I definitely I know that Jane Fonda wanted this to be a message mm -hmm. to, to, to tie on to this real world movement called Nine to Five, which yes. was talking about women's rights. But she then decided to wrap that up in the comedy, as you said. The modern day equivalent to that of that to me is something like um, "Sorry to Bother You," which is Boots Riley's film, which is coming out in uh, I think about a few weeks' time. December, yeah. yeah, and that's again a kind of workplace comedy, not particularly female centric, but it's mm -hmm. about the kind of the social attitudes to work to race, but it's very much a comedy. We have that kind of quite rarely, I think, whereas the more kind of typical version these days is something like The Hate You Give, which is the Amanda Stenberg film that's out at the moment, which is very much, this is going to be talking about race mm -hmm. in America. This is going to be talking about police brutality and issues. We're not really going to give you much of a thriller or a, even a drama around mm -hmm. that. We're going to give you exactly what this film is. I think we've become essentially much more plain in what we want from our films and we want them to be less mixed up. I'm, it's a bit of a tangent, but... I'd actually kind of disagree. I think that it, it used to be that kind of the marketing of the films used to be a lot more straightforward. It's like 95 is a comedy. Yeah. It's a comedy with women. It's a comedy for women in a way. And, you know, now it's a bit more complex. So even the way that we're talking about 95 now, we're talking about the issues, we're talking about the repercussions they had, we're talking about the female friendship at the centre, we're talking about the, um, the sort of surrealist comedy element of it, we're talking about the office politics, the socialism, all of these different things. Things. that's not kind of how it was presented, you know, initially. Mm. It's Lily Tomlin, it's Dolly Parton, there's a nice song and there's Jane Fonda and, you know, they get to like mess around between each other kind of and, and smoke a bit of pot and kill their boss. That's how it's presented. And, you know, now with films like Sorry to Bother You, they're complex and they're so layered and they don't really exactly fit in one particular genre, which makes it very difficult to position them or to get people to see them. And at the same time, the reception to these types of films, particularly when they're fronted or the creative driving force behind them are women, they are sometimes then just perceived or labeled as chick flicks. Mm. So in a way, if we compare something like Office Space, which is another frustrated office workers comedy, that's a cult movie and yeah. it's referred to as such. And cult movie has a sort of reference to it. You know, it's like, oh, maybe not many people know it, but the people who do know it are the cool people. They get it. They get it. Yeah. Whether it's nine to five, it's a silly chick flick from the 80s with Dolly Parton, you know, yeah. it's not talked about with the same reverence unless you actually really get it and you think about it and you appreciate it in its context for what it did and how it still stands up because it does fundamentally still stand up. If you go to a screening of 9 to 5 right now, people are still laughing and at the same time, they're still relating to it, which is kind of sad. 
but also really indicative of its ongoing power. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think office space in particular has this kind of stoner bro mentality to it. And it's and it's a, a very male film in that, I guess, I mean, why would it be? But there's no concern about like the lesser the lesser people in the office, the people who are struggling to get their voices heard. And so it's very much reliant on the, oh my God, office life is so boring, man. And, you know, isn't ordering up stationery a weird way, to Kafkaesque way to spend our lives and all this mm. stuff. And, and you can afford to have those concerns once you're not like struggling to get equal pay or worried that your boss is going to grab your ass. Like, there are, there's definitely an element of that kind of filmmaking. I don't like my job and I don't think I'm going to go anymore. One of these days, I, I, I just, I just kick this piece off. I'm thinking now it might be more fun to just get fired. And I've always wondered what that would take. Oh, Peter, listen. Uh, well, it looks like you've been missing quite a bit of work lately. Well, I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. I mean, we're going to talk about the film Working Girl as well, right? Which is Mike Nichols' film starring Melanie Griffiths as a kind of slightly more slightly more switched on, slightly more ambitious female office worker. And it was really interesting. That came out a few years after... Mm-hmm. Uh, that came out in 1988, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's interesting watching that film and seeing how already there's a kind of... A, more of a steeliness to her character that she kind of accepts that part of working in an office like that, particularly in New York, is to be degraded and abused slightly by these male characters and that she's going to climb the ladder anyway because that's the only way that she can succeed. Well, the interesting thing about Working Girl, kind of comparing it to 95, is that it is much more about ambition than it is about gender equality or than it is about office equality, let's call it, because both Melanie Griffith's character and Sigourney Weaver's character who plays her boss, you would assume that these two women, one of them in a position of power and the other one kind of trying to get to that same place, would help each other out. But actually the whole point of the film is that it in the business world, there are no allegiances, whether gender or otherwise. And is that the way to go? Or in the case of Melanie Griffith, she doesn't lose sight of her kindness and she doesn't actually fall into the trap of becoming like her boss and becoming an absolute bitch to everyone around her both above and beneath hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. If there isn't any room at the top, 
for local girls like us. I'm not giving up. Spray me down? Sorry. Well, I can't very well walk around my own party clinging. Last night was special. It wasn't so special. I had to carry up three flights of stairs. She's ambitious. She wants to get where she wants to get, but she's not going to trample on people to do that as some other people do. And that's kind of the learning for her, whether it's a nine to five. They kind of already know that they don't need to hurt anyone else to work in a fair environment. So it's a lot more kind of communal based and more... There's more solidarity in nine yes, to five. Yes, that's the word, Eventually. Exactly. I mean, you've already mentioned that at the beginning of the film, there's a real class issue going mm. on as well, because Dolly Parton's character, Dora Lee, is essentially kind of treated a bit as a, of a working class redneck like she's she's less yeah, she's, she's a sex object she, and she's yeah. less deserving of people's respect because of that and it's very it's kind of commonly assumed that she's sleeping with the boss so therefore she's not worthy of their time and she's totally uh, it's really interesting to compare her with Joan Holloway from Mad Men yeah. on the TV show because they're both you know very incredibly voluptuous kind of very feminine women they're Marilyn's yeah they're <laughs> Marilyn's or Jones and, <laughs> and instantly every single woman and every single man in that office will judge them and cre- assume and project a personality onto them that has nothing to do with the reality of who they are or how they work, how they develop as professionals. And them dealing with it is a really interesting aspect of the film as well because Dora Lee sort of is completely aware of it and treats it kind of with humour as if something that she has to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So she's just going to embrace it and not let it destroy her personality or not make her, you know, change who she is, uh, which is really inspiring. That's kind of what makes Dolly Parton one of the standouts in the film. And this was her first role as well in any movie. And then you've also got the kind of the art reflecting life thing and that Dolly Parton herself, the way she looks, the way that she acts sometimes invites us to fall back on our kind of base stereotypes of what Mm -hmm. that kind of woman is. Like she couldn't be smart because she looks like that, which is ridiculous, of Mm -hmm. course, but the film and Dolly in in her own life have have experienced that. I mean, going back to Working Girl, there's not a lot of solidarity in that film, but the heartbreaking thing about it and the reason why it doesn't feel like so much of a comedy compared to 9 to 5 is that Tess, Melanie Griffiths' character, expects there to be solidarity between her and Sigourney Weaver's character, the so she said something like, um, it's just a better place to work. There's none of that being chased around the desk crap. Mm. Um, she's right, there isn't. But actually, when it comes down to it, Sigourney Weaver's character just acts like the most toxic male boss anyway, by stealing her idea and screwing her over, essentially. Which happens in 9 to 5 as well, but happens from the stereotype male character that's supposed to look like the patriarchy. Exactly. And Working Girl is kind of interesting because it presents us with a female version of the shitty boss. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because Sigourney Weaver's character basically takes a lot of traits from the Gordon Geckos of cinema, you know, the big shoulder pads, the power suits, the stands, the way she talks, that kind of very ballsy, out there, super confident attitude, but actually just peddling whatever she needs to peddle and hustling whatever she needs to hustle to get her way and to get ahead and to get what she wants. You know, if she needs to trample over my test, she will. If she needs to lie, um, she will. Or we really don't have any more time for fairy tales. Miss Parker, let me ask you a question. How did you come up with the idea for Trask to buy up Metro? How did I, uh... Well, let's see, the, um... The impulse. What led you to put the two together? Well, you know, I would have to check my files. I can't recall exactly the, um... Well, generally. It's not as if it was in the mainstream... You know, it would have to be the... um... So 
those are all kind of very male characteristics, kind of what we imagine a powerful kind of dominant man looks like and acts like, particularly because that's the imagery we've been fed through movies, especially those focused on business, on the business world and on businessmen. Obviously, Wall Street, then the Wolf of Wall Street as well. Yeah. Kind of anything, boiler room. Boiler room. Yeah. That's the image that we have, but we don't actually know what a woman in power looks like. We don't have that many cinematic images of those. And it's Working Girl is one of those examples where we see that dynamic of a powerful woman kind of negotiating her power with another woman and then trying to, both of them trying to kind of have one up on, on each other. But they're trying to behave like men. And mm. Tess is the one who breaks that cycle. And again, I think there's another film that reflects that later on, even decades later, which is The Devil Wears Prada, when you have Meryl Streep <laughs> and has shut her eyes, looked at the heavens and clapped her hands there. <laughs> I guess she's a fan. Quality radio content. <laughs> I don't understand why it's so difficult to confirm an appointment. No, I'm so sorry, Miranda. I actually did confirm last night. your incompetence do not interest me. Tell Simone I'm not going to prove that girl that she sent me for the Brazilian layout. I asked for clean, athletic, smiling. She sent me dirty, tired, and paunchy. And RSVP, yes, the Michael Kors party. I want the driver to drop me off at 9.30 and pick me up at 9.45 sharp. The Devil Wears Prada, where Meryl Streep is the kind of icy boss and Anne Hathaway is the person coming into that situation is essentially the intern that works her way up the company. Correction. Yeah. She's an assistant. She's assistant. And she does not work her way up into the company. She needs to be an assistant for a year in order to get any job she wants. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Meryl Streep's character in that film is very much the stereotypical power dresser, kind of ice queen. You, you're not supposed She's to... She's like an ice queen dragon. Lady. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're not supposed to relate to her at all. In fact, you're supposed to see her as almost a cipher for the male male boss figure. And Anne Hathaway reacts to her very much in that way as well. But what's interesting about that film is the kind of humanising of that female character, that the top-level executive female character does have something underneath the kind of bitchiness and the iciness that you can tap into. It feels a little corny for my taste. But at least it's a, an evolution from what Working Girl was showing us, which was this is just a flat one dimensional bitch character. Well, what's also interesting about Devil Wears Prada is the female entitlement of Andy, which is Anne Hathaway's character, because she very much comes into that world kind of from serious journalism and comes into this sort of fashion magazine world and looks down on it. And she sees it as just a means to an end, but doesn't really, at the beginning of the film, really want to put any effort at it because she sees as this, this is kind of being beneath her. Who's Miranda? She's the editor-in-chief of Runway, not to mention a pigeon work a year for her and you can get a job at any magazine you want. A million girls would kill for this job. Who are you? Uh, my name is Annie Sachs. Oh, you don't read Runway? No. And before today, you had never heard of me? No. You have no style or sense of fashion? Wow. Sure. No, no. That wasn't a question. And that sort of entitlement or professional entitlement or expecting something to come to you because, of course it will, because you're worth it, is usually reserved for young, ambitious men. So that's also an interesting aspect of The Devil Wears Prada, which is not corny, it is perfect and you're wrong. Where do you think Emily Blunt's character sits in The Devil Wears Prada between the kind of ice queen and the young go-getter who expects to get it all? Well, I think she's the sort of person who has very much internalised something that is very common in the creative industries, which is just an expectation to pay your dues. You're going to spend a certain amount of time basically um, getting crap shoveled onto you with the expectation that at some point, at some point, it's going to get better and you're going to get all of the lovely perks and the lovely job and all of the lovely stuff that comes with um, working in that sort of creative environment. Clients would rather deal with men when it comes to figures. Oh, now we're getting at it. 
I lose a promotion because of some idiot prejudice. The boys in the club are threatened, and you're so intimidated by any woman that won't sit at the back of the bus. Spare me the women's lib crap, okay? I wanted to talk about the men in these films as well, because in 9 to 5, the male characters are all villains. Mm -hmm. They're all incredibly misogynistic. There's no saving grace to them, particularly the boss played by Daphne Coleman. He is presented as completely unredeemable. There's nothing that he does that is positive or can save him in any possible way. And also and, like Mad Men, there's an assumption of their power, right? There's an assumption of that position and they only see the world in that way because why would a woman ever have the same status as them? Mad Men is an interesting case because there is... Because it covers um, such kind of tumultuous decades in American history, there is a shift. But you can particularly feel in in Joan Holloway and in Peggy Olsen's characters and the only kind of men in that series who can sort of see that shift and accept it kind of without looking too much at the gender is actually Don Draper, especially in his relationship with Peggy Olsen and how he can sort of see that she will be the new guard of what he's doing because she can just look forward and she's part of the times and how they're changing. Um, So that show in itself is really interesting how it portrays the shifting power dynamic both in terms of generations and genders. My mother raised me to be admired. But no flowers from you. You scared the shit out of me. Bert Peterson told me you were the one person in the agency I shouldn't cross. He and Freddie had a standing argument that you were a lesbian. You think they never brought that up with me? Congratulations. For what? For getting divorced. Do you think all of these films, and I'm thinking of Working Girl, where actually men are just around, but they're not the core protagonists at all? It's not their story. And Nine to Five and a couple of other films like Erin Brockovich or Miss Sloan as well, which deal with women in the workplace. Do you think the men are always necessarily presented as villains? I think it's a bit problematic because men always have to represent the patriarchy, right? Because they're the kind of face of what the female characters are pushing against. And in 9 to 5, he's uh, he's awful, but he's a comedy uh, character as well. Mm. Like, he's meant to be a exaggerated stereotype of what women at the time were facing. And, you know, and that's effective because of that, in a sense, as well. In Working Girl, it's like the male characters in that are kind of extraordinary. You have a kind of Harvard bro played by Oliver Platt who just tells her that she's useless because she never went to the right college and she's a woman. So he gets to set her up on a date with this guy who might give her a job who is played by Kevin Spacey doing cocaine, (laughs) drinking loads of champagne and pouring her, which is amazing casting in retrospect. (laughs) And then finally, the last character that you see is her boyfriend, played by Alec Baldwin, with a classic kind of 80s slip back Gordon Gecko look, who is a real scumbag. Like he's a lot of uh, 80s hybrid bros in that film. Yeah, totally. Like, and loads of kind of stereotypes ticked off. Like he sleeps with one of her friends, and then 48 hours later, she forgives him. And then by the end of that scene, he's yelling at her in the street because she won't get married to him when he wants to get married to her. So Working Girl is just rammed full of these male characters who are just, again, slightly comically awful. And then when you get to the Devil Wears there's a kind of interesting shift in that there's, for want of a better word, there's some allies there. There's people like Stanley Tucci's character who leads Anne Hathaway's character, Andy, through the industry of fashion and explains to her that she might be coming in with these preconceptions, but because she's in this world now, she has to treat it with respect, and that is the way to climb the ladder in the particular situation she's in. She's on her way. Tell everyone. Not supposed to be here until nine. Her driver just text message and her facialist ruptured a disc. God, these people. 
That I can't even talk about. All right, everyone, gird your loins. The other character who's meant to be, I think, slightly worse is her boyfriend, who is also a professional, also very dedicated to his job as a chef and doesn't really realise that she's leading herself off into a new world that has nothing to do with him. And he can't accept that. But there is a running theme, I think, hearing you talk about it, about kind of men being unable to balance you know, women's success or women's ambition as well, because it doesn't fit into their plans, which necessarily implies that their lives, their careers, their life plans are more important than their uh, female partners. Totally. And I will keep singing at you, Anna, until you respond. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to speak... I wanted to speak finally about the press reaction to these films when they were out as well, because I've been watching lots of Dolly Parton interviews from 1980 when 9 to 5 was released. And I mean, Dolly's a consummate professional. She's brilliantly charming and she's got so much charisma. And and we all know that. But there are an amazing string of videos on YouTube of her being interviewed by male, large, white (laughs) interviewers talking very unashamedly and not even consciously about her looks, about her figure, about how she dresses, while they're supposed to be talking about this film that directly attacks men behaving like that to women. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of, not not even shame, just like consciousness about it. Depressingly somewhat, that hasn't really changed when you get to things like The Devil Wears Prada. If you look at the press tour for The Devil Mm. Wears Prada, junkets there, Anne Hathaway was being asked constantly about, first of all, how lucky she was to get the role, how lucky she was to be able to go to fashion shows. And then there's a third question. How much weight she had to lose. How much weight she had to lose. And then the question's like, what was it like working with the dog that you share a comedy scene with? This is a film that is on the surface and to its very core about women in the workplace, about how you have to change yourself to succeed, particularly if you're a woman. There's interesting things to talk about there. And I know it came out in 2006 and that was before we all had this kind of pop culture awakening. awakening. Yeah, but... It seems like, to me, if you're not going to ask people about the core subject of a film, it doesn't really make for a very interesting interview. And I can say that from my lofty position where I didn't have to do the interview. <laughs> but, you know, I don't care what Anne Hathaway thinks about being a fashion show. I care what she thinks about the working conditions. Well, there's a couple of things that will... A, it's interesting that kind of celebrities and actors in particular now are being a lot more forward with just shutting down those types of questions, mm-hmm. either on red carpets or in interviews, especially women when they get asked. It's like, oh, how was it like to fit into that suit? As opposed to, you know, talk to me about your character. They will shut it down which is incredible and makes for very quality youtube content as well i just wondered if you are as happy in your private life and will we be seeing a certain mr ashton kutcher perhaps making a trip over here wow how disappointing was that question <laughs> now were you able to wear undergarments if you're you the, like the fifth person that's asking well, no, that because it... what is going on <laughs> What? Since when did people start asking each other about in interviews no, about their no, underwear? No, because it is such a skin tight. Here's I'll why. leave it up to your imagination. No, come on, that's the character of the movie. I'm not trying to offend you. It's, it's how whatever it you're trying to do, you are. That's a rude question. <laughs> well, I'm not leaving till we get the car crash moment. I mean, that's what we, we would love. Well, then you're going to have to get it from your wife when you go home. Almost feel like kind of going back to the to the point I was making earlier, that there is a difference kind of in the way that these films are presented and packaged. So, you know, something could be a cult movie and talking about office politics and whatnot. And that's how we would talk about something like Office Space or even Sorry to Bother You, whether it's The Devil Was Prada. Made in Dagenham or, you know, 95 for Working Girl, they're chick flicks. Mm. That's it. They're always kind of dismissed up front. They're not presented as issue films. You don't talk about the themes in there. You don't talk about the dynamics between them. You talk about them as kind of light, fluffy entertainment for women. Yeah. And I, I love that. I love that you can stealth a message into a comedy. That's the whole point of good comedy to me, I think, yeah. is that 
much the same as way as when you kind of blend arty stuff and poppy stuff, you get a much more interesting meeting point in the middle. And it's a real shame that we still have this idea that films starring women about quote unquote women's issues mm -hmm. are just for a female audience because they're ultimately not women's issues, they're societal issues. So, you know, without being too serious about it, you can have fun getting mm -hmm. to that point as well. Exactly. Maybe this will be changing as there's more and more female journalists working in, in kind of the cultural and the film arena. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> That's it from us. 9 to 5 is out in the UK on the 16th of November and we'll have the full talk with Fonda up on our YouTube channel a couple of days earlier. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm Henry H. Barnes and Anna is... Anna B. Demented. Our own boss bitch, a.k.a. producer, is Peter Sale. More on Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. Here's our last line. I've a head for business and a body for sin. Good and for you, Hans. <laughs> deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.